As the colors change to full, the shows just keep getting brighter on Global Voice Broadcasting. Shows about everything that matters to you. From love, living, and life. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it this fall. On Global Voice Broadcasting. Don't miss a second. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. One in four adults, or about 61.5 million Americans, experiences mental illness in any given year. One in 17, or about 13.6 million, live with a serious mental illness such as schizophrenia, major depression, or bipolar disorder. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so honored to introduce you to today's guest. Susie Faber-Hamilton is a three-time Olympian for women's middle distance running. Competing professionally, Susie also won seven USA national titles and set two American records. During her running career, Susie appeared in national ads for Nike, Reebok, Clairol, and more, and was prominently featured in leading publications such as Vogue, Cosmopolitan, and Sports Illustrated. Her incredible memoir, Fast Girl, A Life Spent Running from Madness, details her battle with bipolar disorder and how mania controlled and compelled not only her in competition, but in life, eventually leading her to create a second identity as Kelly, a high-end escort. Susie is now a sought-after speaker, and yoga instructor, and I'm so thrilled to have her joining me here today. How are you doing, Susie? I'm doing great, and you know what? It's a thrill talking to you today. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. As I mentioned, I had some extra butterflies because I, as I do, I get very excited about my guests, but this one in particular, um, I, having experienced mental illness and, uh, myself and in my family, I first of all just have to thank you so much for your, your book, for your message, and for being such a needed advocate. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And, you know, the book was incredibly, hard to write a, a two-year process and um, times where I was crying saying what am I doing why am I revealing all this but um, I'm, I'm glad it's helping people so that's making me feel good about it. I'm so glad to hear that and I'm sure it is I'm sure it's helping countless and will continue to. Uh, I know you grew up in the in the Midwest uh, in Wisconsin with sisters and a brother and at some point your brother Dan was diagnosed with uh, and treated for bipolar you mentioned a few times in the book, I thought it was so poignant that what your family was most plagued with was was silence. What did you mean by that? You know, I, growing up back then in the 70s, um, you know, living in a small town in central Wisconsin, it was kind of like, you know, the Brady Bunch family. Most families looked perfect on the outside. You know, there were a few families you knew everything about what was going on and who was getting a divorce. But other than that, the families really kept their silence in that they didn't let other people into their problems. And as we know, everybody has problems. But growing up as a child, you don't know this. And so I thought... We were on the outside, the perfect family. And then I just had this brother who was making everything so confusing and um, causing so much chaos in our family. So yeah. we had never, yeah, we didn't discuss bipolar. I just always thought, why can't my brother just snap out of it? Why can't he just be good? Which I think is uh, something that happens all very commonly with mental illness is maybe somebody says, just snap out of it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, not being able to understand it. And uh, you wrote that you uh, that you wanted to make up for some of that chaos that he had caused and that you even said, I was going to be perfect. Uh, and I was really struck by you had this incredible, this beautiful passion for running, um, saying that you felt like you were flying and it, it's, it's almost poetic. Um, but then it also kind of got mixed in with this uh, perfectionism, where you started to run during lunch breaks at school and refusing to take days off, and even uh, went for a run while you were 
babysitting while the baby was sleeping. And um, I know that mental illness, you know, can feel like it's controlling you. Did you ever feel like actually the compulsion to run? Did running become something that um, you felt you were controlled by? Or was it more kind of your, your therapeutic outlet as a child? Well, I, I felt that it was, you know, that's a great question. I felt that it was therapeutic. It made my mind feel good. If I didn't run, something just didn't feel right. Whether um, there was always like anxiety. So I could get rid of that anxiety by running and have kind of a peace and a calm in my life. And like you said earlier in the question, perfection was something I tried to create, which I mean, for anybody to try and be perfect, you're just setting yourself up for so many problems. But I thought by being perfect could take away um, my parents' sadness and make them proud and make them happy um, to kind of, you know, react to my brother's behavior. They could react to my behavior instead and be happy. I was really also struck by the way... Um you had a lot of scrutiny on you about your your body uh, as a runner and felt the need to eventually have breast reduction surgery because you weren't as, um, you said, flat-chested as some of the other runners. Uh, and the perfectionism that kind of, as you said, compelled you t- to run uh, to some extent also affected your eating behaviors and you ended up uh, struggling with an eating disorder Um did you feel like uh, the eating disorder was part of, was it related to the bipolar disorder? Um, it, does there tend to be kind of crossover? Yeah, I do really believe that um, eating disorders are linked to mental illness. So it's something that families should watch out for in their child. I know my brother had an eating disorder also. Um, I felt like you know, looking back that I had no control in my life. And the one thing I could control was the food that I put in my mouth. And I remember my dad saying, you need to eat your peas or whatever it was. And I refused to do it. And I ended up sitting at the table for a long time that night. But I refused and I kind of conquered my mission of having control. So I learned how food at an early age was mine and nobody else's. So I also then went into a sport where thinness is kind of the theme. The thinner you are, the faster you are was what I grew up with. Obviously, that isn't the case. But growing up as a child, I saw anorexia all around me and I saw runners running really fast. I didn't see the fact that they could be anorexic and only have a two-year career. I didn't realize that. But um, the beginning of your question, what, I forgot what that was. Um, oh, it was about body image, yeah. um, meaning that I, I really felt that my body, I just, you know, when I'd look in the mirror, I felt like my boobs were too big, my body was too heavy, even though I was 100 pounds, you know, I would see myself differently. And again, that's part of the, part of the eating disorder. But it really struck me when I went to college that I didn't own my body anymore. Um, I was supposed to look like something else, and I was getting this reinforcement from people around me telling me. I remember a woman wrote in to my college coach saying that I should wear two bras when I run so my boobs wouldn't bounce. And my coach telling me about this, you know, being humiliated, but you know, then I, I turned around and put two sports bras on and a, a men's coach filming my boobs when I was running. It was like something was wrong with me and I have to change. And the day I got my breast surgery, I kept it a secret. I didn't want anybody, not even my parents to know. And, and they only found out when I had my baby and I wasn't breastfeeding. But again, that coach made me feel like, um, that all I was good for was having my boots. And uh, it was, yeah, it was disgusting. And I had the surgery and I woke up from the surgery and I thought for sure I would be flat chested, like no boobs at all, like a ballerina. I wanted to be completely flat. And I remember waking up and I still had like a, an A cup 
and I was so disappointed. I remember telling the doctor I wanted more, and she she said you'll be glad when you get older that you'll that you actually have something there. But you know that's how um, disoriented or just how I saw myself so different and um, just so upset that I didn't have this special body that looked like everybody else. Wow. It's so heartbreaking because so many women and girls, you know, no matter what we're shaped like, it seems there's pressure on us to look some way we're not. You know, it's it's very, very sad. Um, I know that you said that you started to make a connection between nutrition and running and um, that perhaps some of your behaviors were, were hurting your running. I think you mentioned in the book that it was um, – You'd met your husband, Mark, uh, in college, and it was a nutrition class of sorts, and you still had some mixed feelings about it. But um, did your eating behaviors improve at that point? Uh, it seemed like there was so much going on. You were uh, already getting so much acclaim as a runner. You had this new love in your life. Yeah, you look back on like your freshman year in college, and it's so chaotic. And how do we all make it work? But I had just met Mark, and I had an injury. So I was teetering with depression. My bulimia was really surfacing because I couldn't run to get rid of the anxiety and feel good. And when I met him around that time, he noticed how my food intake was either not enough or I just didn't seem healthy to him. And he didn't like this at all. And I remember him telling me, if you don't get healthy, we can't be dating each other. And here, this was in the first time of my life, something that was maybe a little bit more important to running or at least tied with my running. And so I didn't want to lose that. So I really tried hard to get better. And I realized at that time, if I wasn't eating good, I was going to continue to get these injuries. So with his help um, and encouragement, it was a slow process. And I think when you have an eating disorder, you always have issues with food. And so it, it's something that never completely goes away. So the healthier I eat now, the better I feel. Beautiful. But that is hard. I've also discovered it with bipolar, it's normal to want sweets a lot because of the sugar and the high. It's a quick, instant high. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you're um, expending so much energy too. You know, you, you've you said that you're always on the move, that you were as a kid, that you were as an adult, that you, you know, when you're running so much and, and also that quick comfort, you know, we call them our, our comfort foods for sure. Um, yeah, you, there's this really beautiful, uh, a, a few periods in the book that are just so almost fairy tale like in how just golden they seem. Uh, when you first uh, moved to California, you wrote about how your image as the all-American golden girl brought all kinds of opportunities, a lot of those uh, magazine um, and sponsorships that you were um, landing. You graced pages of Vogue and, and such. Um, and then in 1992, you you made the Olympic team, which had been this long-held dream. Did you Did you feel like many dreams were coming true at that time? Do you remember what that was like? I do. I, it was really one of the happiest times in my life. When I look beyond the running, it was incredible. I was living a life I always wanted. I was the wife. Um, I really wanted to take care of my husband. That was priority number one and cook and I cleaned the house. I just, I enjoyed that role so much and I got to exercise. I was assistant coaching at Pepperdine University. It was an incredible time. But then society is telling me that, wait a minute, you're getting paid a lot of money for a runner, which, I mean, isn't a ton of money, but for runners, it was a good salary, and you need to be faster. You need to be training harder. So I had to leave that environment that I loved so much to go back to training hard. You know, in hindsight, if I could have learned to speak up and say, you know what, I'm really happy with my life, and training shouldn't be the only thing. Um, I should be enjoying myself too, but I couldn't speak up. And I felt like my only role in life was to be a fast runner. That's all I knew. Wow. So I had no choice. Wow. I can only imagine that, that pressure. And then it seemed like it kind of, um, grew and grew. 
And as the opportunities grew and as your success grew, uh, the preliminaries came up and you said that you began to panic that all the good feelings that you'd had were replaced with darkness. And at one point, you even found yourself wishing that you would break a leg. You said anything to get you out of there, out of that that race. Um, was this yeah. bipolar creeping in, the pressure, or was it kind of all of it? You know, it was all, all that pressure was self-induced. Um, you know, I had put all these thoughts into my head since I was very young. And at the Olympics, I know if I had some type of medication to help me with the anxiety to possibly, you know, was the bipolar surfacing? I don't know. I guess I'll never know. But something to keep that at a normal level. I think I could have done so much better. But then you always ask yourself, would the medication have hindered my performance in that maybe I wouldn't be as motivated to train as hard? So it's it's really a fine line to know. But I think if I did have the medication, I would have been mentally so much stronger. And in hindsight, isn't running more mental than physical? And I think it is. So I think the medication would have made things a lot better. Interesting. I think that's a really empowering message for people, you know, because there still is some stigma around uh, psychiatric medications, and they can be so helpful. Um, the the darkness that we were talking about, it, it seemed to grow further into the trials. And one of the most powerful uh, parts of your story, um, I think, especially because you've been so honest about it, is that you actually ended up essentially making yourself fall uh, during these yeah. trials. What what was going through your mind at that moment? This was the 2000 Sydney Olympics. And oh my goodness, I was standing on the starting line just praying that the race could be over, that I wouldn't have to feel that pain anymore, that 10 days leading up to this race being in Australia was just sucking the life out of me and every ounce of the energy I had that could we just get this race over and could I be done and would the cameras get off of me and you know feeling like this is the last place in the earth I want to be and here's the Olympics you've trained your entire life for this one moment and I don't even want to be there so with um, 200 meters to go in the race a full-fledged panic anxiety attack hits me and I know I'm in trouble I'm in deep trouble there's no way I will win this race I've, I've run another hundred yards and then with a hundred yards to go a runner passes me and took my dream the dream of the gold medal and then another runner and then another runner and now I'm in fourth and there's no hopes of coming back to the U.S with a medal and Nike is in the stands. I've disappointed everybody. I've disappointed everybody in the world because in my mind, everybody in the world was watching that race. And I fell on purpose because I felt like if I fall, this is so much better than coming in last because now I have an excuse. I tripped. Something happened. And um, that's how that race ended. And I remember... The media came up with an excuse. They said I was dehydrated. That's why I collapsed. So I just went with that excuse. Wow. It's kind and of handy. What compelled you to share so openly? Because I imagine that is actually something you could have kept secret indefinitely if you wanted to. I think what I've learned through all these experiences in my life from the race falling on purpose, from my eating disorder, from my breast surgery, from my escorting in Vegas, you know, at, at age 43, when I was outed, I had to start figuring out my life once and for all. And opening up to all these challenges in my life was a very freeing experience. But at the same time, it's still really hard for the people that I've hurt. And, you know, you can only imagine your parents reading a book like this. And for me, that's the hardest part is my parents. And... Everybody else, you know, my husband's so supportive and he's been there right by my side, but it's family. It's almost like I still need that permission from them. And that's something that through therapy I'm working on is that 
they have to come to their own terms of accepting this, and it can't be forced. And some people are capable of doing that in life, and some aren't. And so I'm trying to learn that, that I can only do so much to help people understand, and hopefully they can find that capacity to understand, but sometimes they can't. So that's that's hard. What a powerful message right there, too. I think so many of us can relate to that, you know, that it's we can only do so much for other people. And I just really admire the bravery because to to share so vulnerably your whole story, you know, um, I I do hope that everybody who hears it um, is able to have uh, epiphanies and takeaways that I certainly had. Um, It's just so powerful. And speaking of family, uh, you said that one of your happiest times was being pregnant. Uh, You now have a little girl and when you first had her, you ended up having uh, some postpartum depression that uh, the symptoms it seemed very unusual. Uh, you said you weren't able to, uh, part, like you felt like you couldn't put her down. Is that something that uh, tends to happen in people with mental illness? Are they more prone to uh, depression after giving birth? Yes, and now they have links to bipolar developing after having a child. And when I had my baby, the doctor had told me, you probably have postpartum, you know, just it should go away, you know, never really being prescribed medicine. It was more my baby doctor saying this to me, where in hindsight, I probably should have gone to my own doctor to talk about the way I'm feeling. So I really didn't, I just took it as I have a little postpartum or something that isn't quite right. But deep down in the side of the brain that's telling you how you really feel, but we don't always speak up, I knew something was deeper than what the doctor had said. And I I knew something was wrong with me, but maybe was in denial. And I think that's normal for a lot of people, just to deny it. And that, I believe, is when the bipolar really started to happen. And you ended up uh, on an antidepressant, and then later uh, were switched to, I believe it was Zoloft. And you said, I know that um, a therapist who I have on the show is going to share something later today about, you know, antidepressants can cause low sex drive as a side effect. And uh, you actually had a very different reaction. Uh, how, how did Zoloft affect you? I think, you know, you have a good point that most antidepressants cause um, no sex drive or low sex drive. In my case, and I actually know another woman who is uh, prescribed another antidepressant who had the exact same reaction to me, Zoloft, and, and this other girl was bipolar too, but Zoloft and being bipolar can bring on hypersexuality. All you need to do is Google Zoloft and bipolar together, and you can read all about this. Um, so that's where I think people have a tough time understanding that, so they just have to be educated on it. And in my case, I didn't know I was bipolar. If they knew I was bipolar, I really hope they would have known not to have given me this drug. It's not that, And I'm not blaming the doctors or the drug, because Zoloft is a very safe drug. But it, in my situation, it shouldn't have been given to me. And, you know, with doctors so busy, I had a 10-minute appointment and no questions asked about my history with mental illness. Just the one question of asking that could have prevented them from giving me the Zoloft. Wow. how That is incredible. And I'd never heard of that before. I think it's such an important point for people to know and that medications affect us all differently. And um, like you said, that the doctors know what questions to ask. It's so important. Uh, your uh, your anniversary weekend in Las Vegas, I just feel like it, much of your story feels like a movie almost, but it's like this, you know, you, you're this beautiful Midwestern couple, very successful, and you're working to reconnect. And it just started to kind of spiral into this, you know, completely new dimension for you and, and a lot of things happened, but it started with a threesome. How did that come about with you and your husband? 
Well, the Zoloft was given to me, and then which took effect quickly, where I just felt on top of the world, incredibly energetic, and again, the sexuality in me was changing. So two months after the drug, we decided to jump out of an airplane, and which I could never, ever have done in my life, <laughs> ever. But the drug made it so I could do it. And we also decided to have a threesome, which people talk about all the time. Um, obviously, more people do it than we know, being in that industry. I worked with lots and lots of couples, um, which people would be surprised at who actually does this. And so we did the threesome. I changed overnight from that experience. I My sexuality had been awakened. I had always questioned, you know, what would it be like to be with a woman? And now I had made that fantasy come true. And like I said, a switch just went on. And I knew after that experience I was going to do it again. I didn't know that I would actually hire a gigolo or I would go to the extent of picking up men in a bar um, to all these different levels to meeting this uh, chef who started giving me gifts. And then the gigolo who said to me, light bulb moment was, what's better than getting paid for sex? And again, all this was happening. My hypersexuality drive was just incredible. And I question one thing is, would I have done the threesome without the Zoloft? And I'll never, ever know that. Would I have gotten into the escorting without the Zoloft? And I just don't know the answer to that because that industry ended up being nothing like I had perceived it to be from what you see on TV. What I was in wasn't like that. Sure. So you know, it's interesting. It I've learned a lot as well about sex workers um, doing the show. Um, you know, some of my friends are, are sex workers, they're porn stars or they're escorts and they're incredibly intelligent, wonderful people. And that's not really the image we get. Um, what, what is your perception now of the sex industry versus before all that happened? But, um, like you said, I have a lot of sex workers who are friends. I know, um, a couple girls that were in the porn industry or, are still in the porn industry um, who actually enjoy what they're doing. And I am a firm believer that a woman has every right to do what she wants with her own body. But I perceive that industry as what you see on television. You see the woman hanging out on the street with the short skirt, um, looking to pursue somebody who the woman could be in possibly big danger. Now, this does happen, but what I saw wasn't like that at all. It wasn't somebody being forced to do this. It was a woman deciding on her own free will that she enjoyed it and wanted to do it. And so I was put into a, um, an agency that was very, um, the clients were very high profile. And so I saw a side to the escorting that I never could have even imagined existed. And I got in and I couldn't get out. And I didn't want out. But I was going to die because of the bipolar. I had no ceiling to my limits. Where my sex worker friends, they know right from wrong. They know when to stop. I didn't know when to stop. And that's the illness that was saying, take it to the next level, take it even farther. And uh, Kelly, the person I had created, would do absolutely anything to please her client or do anything to heighten her mania. And that's where my problems really develop. Wow, that is that's such an important distinction. You know, like you said, uh, the difference between knowing your limits uh, and that threshold that you said kept kept increasing. And I know your husband, who is very, you know, he's well aware of all of this. I thought it was really uh, commendable and amazing and speaks to the strength of your relationship that, 
even in the difficult times um, that you know that you two were facing um, as a couple, and and certainly the changes in your own uh, emotional life, that you were pretty. I mean, he was aware of what you were doing. He was looking out for you, and you would, you know, you were to call and check in and all of that. But I know he was really concerned that you know your um, alternate identity, this escort life, would be revealed, and. Eventually, it was. Uh, what was that like when a reporter approached you and you realized that probably the entire world is about to know your secret? With my husband, you know, when we first got involved in this and me starting to randomly have my sexual exploration, I like to say, we were kind of teetering on, do we have an open relationship? So we we went with that. I obviously took an open relationship to the extreme. He wasn't into the open relationship. I I really was. And, um, you know, I forgot because there was like another part to the question. You have to fill me in again. Oh, no problem. Um, when uh, the reporter approached you and you actually you realized that everyone was about to find out, like the public was about to find out uh, that you had a dual life, that you had this identity as an escort. What was that day like for you, that experience? What did you feel? It was one of the worst days because my husband had been warning me. And I honestly thought I was indestructible. There was no way I would ever possibly get caught. And many people think that I wanted to get caught because I was revealing my name. And I trusted the people that my clients, I I trusted them so much. I didn't realize that they got personally very involved in who you were. And the particular client who told the tabloid about me, he felt um, rejected by me because I didn't see him twice. Not on purpose, but because of a conflict with my other life. And they get so involved in you almost to the point where they want to marry you and they, they want to know everything about you. They get very obsessed. And so shocking when the smoking gun did out me, I could not believe it. And I just assumed that my life was over. What do I do next? Do I just stay in the sex industry? And at that point, in that frame of mind with my hypersexuality, I felt I had no choice. This was my only option. Wow. It, but you didn't yeah, was, uh, You didn't quit right away, though, right? Or you did quit, no, as I understand I, it, right? Right after I was outed, I was basically forced to see the doctor. And, you know, a lot of people around me were incredibly anti-sex um, working. Uh, sex workers, they, you know, you don't even associate with them because of the stigma, they're dehumanized. It's amazing how people don't even want to open their eyes to it. So I was, you know, forced to go to the doctor um, because I had a suicide attempt, which is number one why I should be with the doctor, but I didn't really see that at the time, but I was diagnosed as being bipolar and given a medication that was just a small amount, they kind of had to wean me on it. And then they took me off the Zoloft really, really slowly. So nothing had changed in me for a good six months after I was outed. So all of a sudden, why is behavior going to stop? Because the illness is being treated, but I'm in no place where... I'm thinking straight. I'm still delusional. So I did have, as I call them in the book, slip-ups where I wanted an outlet from the, what was happening, how society was shunning me. So I did slip up and saw some clients wow. during I, my recovery. Wow. And that's, you know, when you think about an alcoholic who, you know, has, they have relapsed, this is, you know, basically the same thing. Sex was the drug to fuel my brain. Alcohol was becoming um, the fuel that was giving me mania also. Absolutely. No, that makes that makes good sense. You know, they say you need to replace also a compulsion with something. And I, 
I can't imagine, you know, I, I certainly, and I read it, the book with, um, I have a similar perspective as far as having a lot of respect for sex workers and, and disliking the stigma. Um, but I could feel, I almost felt like I was grieving for you or with you, um, to, to suddenly not have it, you know, to not have this, this coping mechanism. Um, did you feel like you had to, to grieve it or did you sort of gradually the medicine kicked in and then everything just sort of changed after the, the couple of relapses? It was, yeah, it definitely was a grieving part because I felt like the medicine they're giving me is changing me. Was I the person before? You know, was I more the escorting person and was I more this crazy person who, you know, just wanted to live? Um, or was I now the person who they're trying to bring down and keep level? And I still, I mean, I still have troubles with that right now that in therapy, um, I just have a, I have a new doctor now and I, I have to figure out what is really me? And I think that's the hardest part of bipolar is being brought down to what is supposed to be a normal level of contentment. So what is normal? Everybody has different levels. Sure. So I struggle with that every day. And it doesn't get easier because bipolar will never go away. Mm. But I do wish there were drugs you know, they've improved so much, but I wish there was a drug that could give me more of a lift, but still keep me stable. And I think that's what I'll be working on with my psychiatrist. Beautiful. Yeah, I know that uh, my mom struggled with uh, not bipolar, but major depression. And I know that it took a long time to get the the chemical cocktail, as they say, correct, you know, that you're and your hormones can change and, and all kinds of things. Um, but the journey you're on just seems so important. Um, was it empowering to hear that you had bipolar in a way that you had a reason or um, because of your family's history? Was it was it complex? It was, you know, it was important and it made a lot of sense. But, you know, when like if I answer this question, I seem to get criticized in that um, some of the sex workers I just heard feedback on is that I'm using the bipolar as an excuse for the sex work so that the sex work is bad and that's why I, I did it because I was bipolar. And I just want to clarify that, that I don't believe sex work is bad and I'm not using bipolar as an excuse because I knew exactly what I was doing and I did enjoy what I was doing. It's just could I have gotten into this industry without the Zoloft? That's that's the key question. And again, that's the question I will never know. But I do look at that industry so differently now um, than I ever have. And I wouldn't have even ever talked about this because it never would have come up in my life. But I'm glad it has because I think, you know, by telling my story, it can open up doors. and. For sex workers, they don't have to feel shame anymore or dehumanized. They're people too, and they have every right to be treated equally and treated as good people. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And I personally, reading your book, felt that you spoke really wonderfully of the industry, of the people in it. And I imagine that society's take? Because I know at one point, I think in an interview on 2020, you mentioned that you kind of went from America's sweetheart to whore, quote whore, um, overnight. And that's their perspective. So I could see people hearing that and thinking, you know, it's that whole, like you said, there's stigma and a lot of misunderstanding, which is which is unfortunate. Um, how is your family doing now, your your husband and your, your sweet little girl? Oh, my gosh. They are both doing incredibly well. My husband, very, very supportive of me. Um, you know, always there to watch over me in that with bipolar, you need a good support crew. I mean, that's huge. If you don't have that support crew, I don't know how people can really feel better or get well 
And even though you never get over it, get to a place of contentment, you have to have support. And he's, he dove into this focusing on the illness and the behavior came from the illness. And my daughter looks at her mom, I know in a strong, powerful way that her mom has gotten help for her bipolar and is much more stable and is a better mom because of the medication. Um, and she just understands mental illness like um, better than most adults do. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really empowering to have a child who gets it and understands that my brain wasn't working right. And when she does read the book, I mean, she'll read about some crazy things that her mom did that most people, even sex workers, are not going to do because they know right from wrong. And she'll be able to see that her brain, my brain, was way out of control and that that was the illness. She sounds like a wonderful kid, and I, she has a wonderful mom and parents. Your your marriage and your husband standing by you and being so supportive um, really brought me to tears by the end of the book. I just felt like <laughs> you're such a great example, you know, um, of what you would hope that people would have as far as support, that you've, um, you know, stayed together and working through it. And it's just so beautiful. Um, before I let you go, what what do you most hope people will learn from your story? There's there's a lot of things about, about my story. But first of all, I did want to get to one thing. I want people to understand that I've went through all this, but life isn't a fairy tale right now. It's not all happily ever after. It will be a struggle for the rest of my life. And there will always be situations that will come up about this um, that I'll deal with. And I know I'll deal with them with strength and no shame. And I want others to feel that the stigma of mental illness should not make them feel shamed one bit. Um, we need to, as a society, really come together and understand mental illness and you know, we all understand cancer, but we don't seem to have a grip around mental illness. And it's a disease just like cancer. And it's a disease once it takes over the brain, things are going to happen. Suicide, the rate of suicide, how high that is. And we can prevent this by educating ourselves to help the ones around us to recognize those signs. So I'm hoping that people will read this book and look at bipolar in a different way and reach out to ones that they see destructive behaviors happening. Um, because my story shows and tells so much that is personal, um, that always isn't shown in somebody. So maybe asking the right questions um, and looking at my behaviors and asking that hard question about the hypersexuality. I think with doctors, doctors even have a hard time talking about that. They may be embarrassed. So we need to look at sex in a different way, as not as a taboo or in a bad way, because there is the concept, there is the component of this disease and sex. And somehow people have a hard time when it comes to sex and a disease. They, they don't want to talk about it. And we really need to go there. Very, very true and so poignant. Thank you so much. Thank you for your message. And thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. And just continued success to you. Such a powerful, powerful story. To learn more about Susie Favor Hamilton, visit her website, susiefavorhamilton.com, and read her beautiful book, Fast Girl, A Life Spent Running from Madness. I'll include purchasing links on the show notes for today, which you can find at augustmclaughlin.com. Now for a little Q&A with our favorite sex and relationships expert, Dr. Megan Fleming. 
I had to ask her about this. I hear from women pretty regularly who have a much higher sex drive than their partner, um, partly because I've written about it on my blog and I talk about it here. In one case, a woman told me that her therapist suggested she must have been abused to have a high libido when, in fact, that wasn't the case and she seemed really healthy. It's so common for people to have shame around sex drive differences, no matter who's higher. Um, but I think more so when it's a woman, thanks to a lot of the myths and misperceptions there are around our sexuality, so many women end up thinking there's something wrong with them, which isn't often true at all. So I asked Dr. Megan this, how can someone determine if their high sex drive derives from an illness such as bipolar disorder or is completely normal? When does it become a red flag? August. Great questions as always. And, you know, I love this one because, you know, in our culture, we often just assume that men are the ones with a higher level of libido. And it's important to recognize, I see a lot of clients where the women are coming in and they basically have their male partner is the one with the low desire. And it often has to do with stress. It can have to do with hypogonadism and low testosterone. So there are many reasons, but importantly, we shouldn't stigmatize women who have high libidos. You know, in your question, there's a woman who actually had a therapist who suggested perhaps she was even sexually abused. Um, and although it's certainly true that people who have sexual abuse can sometimes have hypersexuality or on the other end of the spectrum, completely asexual, the symptom or the experience of a high libido is, I think, partly driven by hormones. Um, and again, think about all the reasons that drive sexual behavior or why we masturbate. It's not always just for pleasure. It can be for tension relieving. It can be uh, to get to sleep at night. It could be to reduce boredom. Um, you know, in fact, I think I often recommend an orgasm a day. I think that there are really a lot of health benefits to uh, dopamine and the oxytocin and um, the physiological aspects of having an orgasm and being sexual. So I think the important thing, though, for anybody to distinguish is the difference between when is it a healthy high level of libido and when is it a red flag or problematic? Um, because certainly with some uh, mental illness like bipolar disorder, hypersexuality can be a symptom of uh, that illness. And I think it's important to recognize, as with any kind of out-of-control behavior, you have to recognize in terms of your libido, does it create sense of crazing? Uh, craving? Do you have a feeling of any loss of control? Are you having sex with multiple partners and not having safe sex and putting your uh, health, at uh, sexual health or physical health in consequence? Um, do you spend hours uh, online or engaging, trying to find a sexual partner or watching porn? Because if ultimately you're engaging in a behavior that takes up more time, energy um, than you had wanted or considered, and it feels like you're losing control or it feels like it's having a negative impact on your quality of life, your work or your relationships, to me, that is an important red flag. And no matter where you are on the spectrum, it's important that you recognize there's always help. So recognize and distinguish what is a very healthy and happy uh, libido and enjoy it for yourself and in relationships. And when you really should recognize those red flags because it's an important step to take more control of your life and not let your libido sort of run the show. Such fantastic advice. And I think it relates to so many areas of our lives and relationships. Anything that's keeping us from feeling, you know, healthy and happy, um, overtaking much of our lives is worth addressing, right? And if not, it's probably embraceable. Um, the next question I asked Dr. Megan relates to, uh, the topic of mental illness that we're exploring today. Um, you know, I wanted to know from a clinical standpoint what she thought we could do if we have a partner, um, who's struggling with mental illness. And here is what she had to say. So this is a question that talks about, um, you know, what do you do when your partner may be having um, sexual side effects? And that may be the nature of uh, sort of the mental illness or also uh, commonly the uh, treatment or medication. Um, so again, in the depression, we certainly know that loss of libido or low libido is a symptom of uh, depression. And also, and importantly, one of the um, 
most common treatments is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs like Zoloft, Zoloft Prozac. Uh, and all those medications, unfortunately, do often have sexual side effects that are certainly dose-related. So at higher doses, um, more symptomatic. And that typically looks like uh, lower libido and also difficulty uh, or delay in orgasm. And so, um, you know, and then for other conditions like bipolar disorder, where you could be hypomanic, hypersexuality might be an aspect of what your partner is struggling with. So I think one of the most important ways to be supportive is just to make sense of how, why your partner is having this experience that's independent of you. I think so often when uh, actually on both sides of the coin, whether you feel like your partner always wants to have sex and it doesn't feel like it's about you or when they never want to have sex and you think it's about you, it's to recognize it's not always about you and to take that big step back and realize, okay, what might be empathically and with compassion going on for them. And, you know, in the case of some who has uh, depression or it's a medication related side effects to really think about what are ways of giving and receiving pleasure um, that may not be explicitly sexual um, or they could be where maybe your partner is up for stimulating you or bringing you to orgasm or mutual masturbation, but they may not necessarily have the energy or interest for a sexual experience themselves. And I think to just sort of enjoy uh, both, again, the pleasuring aspects as well as the relaxation of the touch, the caress, the holding is important and so huge. Because I think, again, when sex is working in a relationship, it's a small part of the relationship. But when it feels like it's not working it really unfortunately becomes a large part of the relationship and creates stress um, and can sort of create tension that um, sort of gets displaced and creates, um, you know, conflict or difficulties in other aspects of the relationship. And that's an important piece to really um, recognize and see the value of finding ways that work for you both that uh, you can maintain connection, closeness, a physical relationship that may or may not be your ideal in terms of the frequency um, or the um, intensity of those experiences, but working it out together so that both of your needs get met and that you have ultimately the compassion and understanding that your partner's struggle or difficulties is not about you. Compassion, understanding, and a little bit of compromise here and there, right? I just love, love, love what she had to say. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I'd love to hear from you by way of a simple review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can also share thoughts and any questions you have with me directly or through social media. Find those links on my website. Again, that's augustmclaughlin.com. To learn more about the fabulous Dr. Megan, visit her website, greatlifegreatsex.com, and follow her on Twitter, Megan Fleming. PhD. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.